This is the Green Majority, Canada's oldest and most decrepit environmental news hour. We need to come up with a better list of adjectives for you to use. Crustiest. Yeah. I mean, what was the last one? I thought the last one was good. Environmental news hour. It sounded like you said bustiest, but I'm pretty sure you didn't say bustiest because, frankly, between the three of us, there's no, not a lot of bust happening. No, no, really, there's not. And uh, we're on CIUT 89.5 FM or on your beloved community radio station or on podcast platforms, including the Harbinger Media Network. Those good people over at Harbinger. And now it's us good people because yeah. we're kind of one of them. We good people. We've, we've, we are very good people. <laughs> Despite what our iTunes ratings say, we are very good people. Despite what my ex-boyfriend would tell you, I'm a good person. And Stefan will be interviewing Stephen Thomas from the David Suzuki Foundation uh, in-depth interview about... Um, about energy making pop- making electricity more affordable through making it renewable yeah they go hand in hand isn't that nice that is nice no and that is that is an uplifting thought it's a pretty uplifting interview with a bit of pieces about how the oil the, the natural gas lobby is bad Boo. there's a bit of that in there it's uh, getting two birds stoned at once yeah sure why not okay so Two pieces of two pieces of, of uh, climate intrigue before Stefan's interview. Gada Al Sharif recently published an article in Toronto Star about independent grocers and how they're able to provide cheaper produce than big chains. She finds that it's because independent grocers are able to buy produce directly from farmers, are able to repurpose castaway produce that big chains sell cheaply, and because they don't plan to make huge profits. Independent grocers are, however, currently forced to buy things like eggs, bread, and dairy from their competitors because big chains like Sobeys and Loblaws own the wholesalers. And transit, a group of people took it upon themselves to paint bus lanes on Dufferin Street in Toronto. Dedicated bus lanes were supposed to be fast-tracked through city council, but they've stalled. The group stated, quote, giving priority to buses and streetcars will help thousands of people and can be done cheaply and quickly. In praise of these kinds of efforts, transit advocate Daryl Owens wrote in his Substack recently, quote, it's time for people to start forming organizations to protect cyclists, transit riders, pedestrians, and yes, drivers from car centrism. I'm not going to spend years writing to city council that I need a crosswalk where I live. I'm just going to paint it now. I'm not going to wait years on hundreds of thousands of dollars for impact studies blocking traffic out of neighborhood streets. We need to just erect the barriers and bike lanes ourselves. Erect the bus benches ourselves. Shrink the streets ourselves. There is a long history of neighbors taking matters into their own hands. We need to bring tactical urbanism back. Yeah, and so... I suggested these two articles to sort of go along with the interview because I think all of these things have a pretty specific thing in common, which is that we have the ability to push back on on sort of the forced expenses of our lives. Independent grocers are able to have cheaper groceries than the Loblaws of the world, except for where Loblaws owns everything. So... Maybe we shouldn't be allowing Oblaws to own everything. And in the same way, like, 
the transit users are systemically sort of undervalued because likely they don't own property. And this is something I learned actually recently. In Ontario, you can vote in any municipal you own property. So landlords who own property in multiple locations can vote in multiple places. And yet people who live there but are, say, permanent residents can't vote at all. We are disempowering people who don't have money, whether it's in transit or in terms of, you know, the power they have access to or in terms of groceries. And all of these things can be pushed back on. But it requires a coming together of community and attempt for communities themselves to sort of take some sort of control or ownership of these systems. So whether or not it's like joining a co-op grocery store or, you know, doing some tactical urbanism or some of the conversations that I have with Stephen Thomas about some of the work that's being done around Canada is quite inspiring about giving power back to the communities themselves to create their own power. All of these things sort of localize the benefits of the good that's happening. And that has to be a significant part of the way forward. There are some situations in which we just need to be driving this transition ourselves and we just need to be making these moves ourselves. I was talking to a friend who I'm I'm not gonna name drop because they're they're still working on the report, but there's like a paper in the works about sort of like what it means and what it effectively looks like for communities to be building these transition systems on their own, part and parcel to and, a, and separate from efforts that are happening at government levels. Not not that we're finally getting here. There, there are like radical revolutionary practices that have always been in place in these communities, like systems of mutual aid and like, let's be real, like systems of like anarchism where like people are providing these services for themselves and for their own communities and taking care of each other and and it's it's great that these are concepts that are kind of finally almost like I'm going to say like trickling upward from grassroots communities into sort of more maybe widely popularized progressive spaces it's cool that this conversation is starting to happen I'm sure not for the first time I'm going to say again it's cool that this conversation is happening again Um, and it's exciting and and also just this little transit story I I am at a crosswalk where or not at a crosswalk I live at an intersection where people get in accidents almost weekly and it's and it's inspiring me to go and I don't know do something paint some stuff places in an effort to try to make it so that like thankfully it's (laughs) Not thankfully. It's always car on car. It's never car on pedestrian. So that's good. But one day it will be. And now I'm feeling inspired to go do something about it. All right. We're going to go to a tiny bit of music and come back with Stefan speaking with Mr. Stephen Thomas. Uh, about something, something, something we sort of mention offhand a lot. Like, like, it, like energy can be cheaper if we switch to renewables. But it's nice to have something in depth here. So oh yeah, that'll be good. That'll be good. Stick around with the Green Majority, Canada's chestiest environmental news hour. God, chestiest. That's... Stick around. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported, and we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. And I'll take myself another opportunity and uh, remind everyone that we are 
a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, featuring great shows such as Tech Won't Save Us, Press Progress's Sources, and the Forgotten Corner Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are super delighted to be back with Stephen Thomas, the Climate Solutions Policy Analyst for the David Suzuki Foundation, to track, talk, talk about partially your new report called Keeping the Lights On, Ensuring Energy Affordability, Equity, and Access in the Transition to Clean Electricity Canada, but also to talk more generally about the shift to try to be 100% renewables and, and the ability Canada has and, and what kind of benefits it can have for Canadians and the to be blunt, the barriers that are being put in the way. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me back on the show. Really looking forward to uh, to digging in on all things clean electricity and this hugely important topic of affordability of energy. Last time we spoke, we talked about how the goal of 100% renewable electricity by 2035 was possible. That was sort of the big thing of your last report and you showed how to do it. But and so before we get into the conversation about all the benefits and drawbacks or, or not benefits and difficulties that might be a part of trying to get there, maybe we should talk a little bit about that last report and folks who didn't hear it about how that is possible. So can you give us a brief overview of that report and what that you, that you did that outlined how Canada could hit 100% renewable energy in the next 13 years? Right. So in May of 2020, we released a report shifting power, zero emissions electricity across Canada by 2035. And it's only been about four months or so since we released that report, but it feels like a lifetime. A lot's happened in Canada and around the world that support the, the kind of things that we were saying in that report. And I think we're in a place where it feels even more possible to shift to 100% renewable electricity. But there's so many details to dig into, but at a very high level, our report was the first modeling report in Canada to show that kind of pathway, to show Canada and all 10 provinces how we're getting to 100% zero emissions electricity by the year 2035. For us, we, we went through this big process to choose which pathways to present. And we presented pathways that rely a lot on wind, solar, energy storage, energy efficiency, and grid upgrades, connections between provinces to make all of that possible. And the, the short answer is that we found that it was. Yeah, we're the first report in Canada to, to kind of have, have some sort of definitive answer for that pathway being possible, it being affordable, and it being reliable. It keeps, keeps the lights on, to use that term again, where we have electricity when and where we need it even as we are using a lot more electricity in the future. We think it's a very good thing that we are moving away from fossil fuels, things like gasoline and diesel in our cars, moving those to clean electricity for electric vehicles and electric public transport, moving away from natural gas and home heating oil to heat our homes, 
and moving instead to high efficiency electric heat pumps. Even with all that more electricity we're using, we can have an affordable, reliable, stable grid with zero emissions. And most of how we get there is because wind and solar are so advanced. Uh, energy storage too, they continue to be the solutions that we can, can rely on if we, if we do this the right way. So I'm sure we're gonna dig into the details on, on exactly what that right way might be, but we're happy to, happy to dig into it. Awesome. Yeah, thanks. And yeah, further on, I do want to talk a little bit about how for so long the mantra around renewable energy was that it was too expensive. And now we're in sort of the flip side of that where the very clearly the price per kilowatt for renewables is often cheaper than even keeping coal power online. And so we're getting these different kinds of arguments as to why it's now it's not possible. It's no longer not too expensive, but now there's new ways to talk about it. But before we get there, let I'm curious if we can talk about in towards that goal, what kind of regulations are useful to to get us there? So in the time that we last spoke, Canada has sort of started this process for what are called the clean electricity regulations. This 2035 target for, for zero emissions electricity is a target that the federal government says they now want to meet, which is actually fantastic. And they're starting the process of developing the regulations that, that will help get us there. Across different countries and in different regions in the world, uh, there are different ways to regulate, different ways to, to show that incentive or to force utilities to, to meet these kind of targets. In some places, we already see this in provinces and all throughout the United States, are things like renewable portfolio standards, setting a percentage for by this date, we want 50% renewables. By this next date, we want 80% renewables all the way up to 100. That's the way it's being done in some places. That is harder to do in Canada, just with all the federal and provincial jurisdiction details here. But we see it popping up in some provinces. But the policy that we're talking about today under the clean electricity regulation is not so much saying how much renewables we want, but limiting how much emissions and fossil fuels on the grid we have. So the federal government has a clear mandate, clear jurisdiction to regulate emissions in the electricity sector. We've done it before for things like the coal phase out and regulating what, you know, what rules we have today for natural gas. So the federal government being able to say these plants can't emit anymore after X date or we set a standard for how much they emit is very clear. So that's, that's what uh, the federal government is trying to do, which again, I think is, is a good thing that we're moving toward. Lots of folks are doing really good work toward it. I think your, your listeners may be shocked to find out that uh, the fossil fuel industry is making it hard for everybody. And I think this might be a theme for our conversation today, but the natural gas lobby in particular is working hard to erode this policy, working hard to make sure that we, we might not actually meet that target, which makes uh, the, the collective work we all do even more important. Yeah, for sure. And I, I would love to hear a little bit more about that specifically, actually, because obviously the as people who follow almost any type of regulation or attempts to go, that the policy itself can be as good as it wants, but the ability to get it enacted and then ability to actually have it enforced are two things, two completely other things. And so, yeah, how is it going? What is the process of trying to get these things or these policies enacted going and, and, and what kind of difficulties are we come up against? So 
I think to be clear, the natural gas lobby is the single biggest barrier to Canada achieving zero emissions electricity by 2035, full stop. I think communities, uh, First Nations, many provinces, in fact, and certainly advocates like ourselves who really see the benefit, the health benefits, the cost benefits, the job benefits of clean electricity. Lots of folks want to see this happen. And to reiterate, findings from our report and other reports, like this is technically possible. There are no, no longer real technical barriers to making, making this sort of thing happen. The challenge and, and what is making this so hard for all of us is the, the natural gas lobby's work in introducing a whole suite of exemptions, extensions, loopholes that taken together won't actually lead to a net zero electricity grid or a zero emissions electricity grid by 2035 and actually run the risk of introducing more fossil fuels on the grid than we have today. So if we're starting this whole process, doing all this work of putting regulations together and end up with more fossil fuels and missing all the targets, then what's the point? Um, so, so we're really concerned about how it's going, at least at the time of recording. And we think that highlights our collective work even more, it highlights the importance of that collective work. So we're never gonna beat them on the number of lobbyists, right? They have literally dozens of lobbyists meeting with policymakers and utilities every single day. Um, and the sad thing is, is that these policymakers are listening to them and are, are suggesting policies that, that kick the can down the road and, and that don't actually apply these, these sorts of standards. So without getting too into the weeds, we're, we're seeing things like exemptions so that most natural gas plants won't actually have to, to shut down by 2035. We can see them operating into the 2040 decade and beyond. We're seeing lots of like grandfathering in and in our view, much too much room for things like offsets, which actually won't lead to the emission reductions we need to see. But it, at least for now, uh, you know, I still am feeling like this is something we can do. This is why it's worth working on for me. We're doing lots of work with, with our supporters and our allies and, and doing what we can to support communities to keep pushing on this one because our, our biggest barriers are political. This, the benefits are clear, the possibilities clear, and it's, it's worth working on. Yeah. And I feel like that is both a frustrating but inspiring place to be, you know? I feel like 20 years ago, you could make the argument that some of the biggest barriers were technical, and so it required, you know, a lot of sort of thinking and academic and engineering work to be done, whereas now it was really shifted into a political fight because you can very easily see how a fully renewable good could, could exist. And yet, here in Ontario, we're expecting to build more natural gas over the next five, 10 years. And as you said, our emissions are expected to spike. You know, even it's, I've been reading about the ways how Toronto is actually going to have a hard time meeting its emissions targets because the energy it's getting is going to become dirtier. And so the city itself has all these climate targets and they all sound great, but they can't control the energy they are getting that the province has decided to bring online and it's natural gas above all else. Yeah, we're seeing the same frustrating story in a few places, uh, in Alberta, Saskatchewan as well, to some extent. And, and this, for me, is why this federal policy is so important and why we need real clarity. Because if we have any wiggle room 
folks are going to keep building gas plants. Folks are going to make our problem worse and make the work of transitioning off of that even harder when we know we have the solutions today. You've alluded to this already, but I always take the opportunity to say that wind and solar are the cheapest form of electricity in history. Not, you know, not slightly cheaper than, than coal at some parts of the day, depending on how you slice it. They're the cheapest. So using a lot of them makes good sense and, and building, building in uh, all these grid upgrades to, to make sure we ensure reliability um, isn't, isn't the problem it used to be. I will say in Canada and in the Canadian context, uh, the report that we released uh, back in May so far is still the only report in Canada that, uh, uh, that shows that sort of pathway to, to meeting that, that target of zero emissions by 2035. Uh, we're wasting a lot of time doing modeling studies that talk about a grid that might be net zero in 2050 or beyond. Um, so we, we really do wish, and we're, we're working with other folks to encourage um, other pathways, other reports too, because uh, we need to keep, keep reiterating this for sure. Awesome. And so before we get to our first music break, I do want to spend a little more time on the natural gas lobby, specifically because for so long, I feel like the natural gas was able to sort of position itself as the clean fossil fuel. You know, it was not coal and dramatically better than coal and all of these different ways you could word it for it feeling like, oh, well, even if we switch to that's so much better than that is good. And now we're at a point where it really is, in some ways, the biggest barrier to an 100% renewable energy grid because because coal plants are going offline. Like coal is dead for all intents and purposes. It has, it is, there's not really an argument for it to be lasting much longer. Every major jurisdiction is moving off of it. Like it's a matter of time now. Whereas natural gas, we're still seeing, as we said, new plants being brought online. It remains, you hear about liquid natural gas being shipped off sea, uh, offshore, all these other types of ways that it's coming back. And, and it's much more sticky. If and if that makes sense, as 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 like a, it's a sort of more interconnected or more stuck in our systems in a way that that coal really is not anymore. And so, I'm curious if you can talk about how we can try to pry this sort of squeaky clean image off of natural gas and natural gas lobby, because you know they it is not renewable energy, it is not clean. It's still a fossil fuel, and but how do we? talk about this now in a way that sort of undoes some of the damage that was done before. Yeah, I think even the, the, the public relations work of even calling it natural gas is one of the most amazing things that's happened in energy in, in the last couple of decades. Uh, it's a fossil fuel. Um, and as you're saying, as, as, coal, as we win these fights to phase out coal, um, uh, natural gas uh, is is becoming one of the more worrisome barriers that we have in in this whole transition. Um, but make no mistake, it's a fossil fuel. It's it's the gr largest uh, growing source of of emissions on the grid in Canada. It's the biggest threat um, here and elsewhere. Um, and it's not a bridge fuel. I think it really was succeeded in that sort of messaging too from from ten years ago. And we're still hearing it from from politicians. And it it can't be further from the truth. It's a bridge to nowhere. It it leads us to a path where we get stuck in burning things uh, for for energy instead of uh, the the clean electricity transition that brings all these other benefits along with it. Um, 
to say nothing of of fracking of of offshore drilling of the things that we you know we we have to do to get this resource um uh, methane flaring and, and methane leakage is one of the, the most potent greenhouse gases um it's nasty stuff that we uh, that we we have to phase out and i think that's another truth and reality that we have a hard time with in canada uh we you know um for, for a lot of folks in government, we can't even say with clarity and with a straight face that we need to phase out the tar sands. Um, we actually need to stop production um, of fossil fuels. Um, and, and we're a little far off of, of accepting that reality when it comes to natural gas too. Um, uh, every new gas plant, every new house that gets hooked up with natural gas, uh, as we're talking here in the year 2022, is a failure. Um, and we, we got to work hard to uh, to switch instead to to renewables to clean electricity uh, because we're so confident of the benefits that come along with those two as a segue from that topic that fear of natural gas and specifically if it being cut off uh in europe has really brought the concept of energy poverty i think more into the fore because people are so worried about not about basically people freezing to death or being very, very freezing, not to death, but at least freezing in situations in, in Europe. And so this concept of, of what we have to do uh, about that is huge. And, but, but we would be remiss to think that that's only happens here. Like, I, you know, after reading your report, it became very clear that energy poverty is not something that just might exist, you know, due to this, you know, due to the war in Europe as a reason. Energy poverty exists all over the world and exists here in Canada quite specifically. And so can you talk a little bit about how energy poverty exists in Canada and, and where and in what places are most affected? Yeah. And I mean, to start, it's just awful to see what's happening in, in Europe and the way that Russia is using energy as a weapon uh, here and all of the atrocious things that they've done and how it's led to this affordability crisis really far beyond anything Canada's ever experienced. Is, is just awful to see. So I really, I really, the last thing I want to do is make light of what's happening there. But I need to, to be very clear too, that in this crisis of affordability that we have really across Canada, as well as Europe, as, as inflation is rising very sharply and folks can't afford some of the basics, it's important to note that the cost that we're talking about is the cost of fossil fuels. The cost of natural gas to heat our homes is, is what's increasing so sharply. The cost of gasoline and diesel to transport goods and to, to, to get around is what's increasing so sharply. The cost of renewables is stable. In fact, the cost of renewables and energy storage are going down as the cost of nearly everything else is going up. So, so I, I can't reiterate that enough that when we're talking about affordability, I really mean it, that renewables, wind, solar, things like energy storage, and certainly energy efficiency, retrofits, keeping people comfortable in their homes are all real solutions for climate change, but are real solutions for the affordability crisis we find ourselves in right now too. So I think like we got we to gotta call it as we see it a little bit here where fossil fuels and the way they're being used and the way they've always been used as a political tool and you know impact our energy security as countries as well as you know as on the individual level that's at play here and and this shift to renewable electricity is part of that conversation but so so the the report that we're releasing now on October 12th is called keeping the lights on and two amazing academic authors who deserve all the credit for this work led by Dr. Runa Das 
at uh, Royal Roads University put together what we think is a, is a really good one-stop shop where if folks are curious about energy poverty and what we can do about it in Canada, I think first we need to reckon with the fact that energy poverty is a big issue here. And I think less so with this recent affordability crisis and inflation and, and the struggles that we're facing here in the year 2022, but it's been a problem for a very long time in Canada and it's gone, it's gone very, uh, very much unaddressed. So I think the first thing this report does is address and identify what energy poverty is, the fact that it's a problem in Canada, and then it follows that up with a whole suite of um, recommendations for solutions to really support the people who most need it. But energy poverty is, is an issue in Canada. About one in 10 families, households in Canada struggle with energy poverty. That's more than 10% of their annual income goes to the cost of energy in their home. About one in 10 is that average across Canada, and it's even worse in some regions. In Atlantic Canada, for instance, it's, it's more like one in five households struggle to, to make ends meet. And energy and the cost of energy is a big reason why. This, is, this overlays with problems of inequality, problems of poverty, the social and economic determinants of health, the inequalities we already see uh, and how it, you know, we, we see these things more pronounced in, in, in rural cases. In some parts of the country, we see these things more pronounced among communities of color, indigenous communities, black folks living in Canada. So it's a problem. And I think we, we have to say that really clearly uh, that it's a problem today. The work that the report is trying to do also is put forward all these different solutions in the context and with the hopeful assumption that we actually succeed also in moving all of these, these energy needs to a clean electricity system. So hoping to put those conversations together to, to find some common solutions. To me, what you're partially doing is trying to articulate exactly what is meant when people talk about leaving no one behind in a just transition. Like this is that kind of language, I think, can feel disconnected from reality just because it's so huge. And, and it, but I think what I what I like about so much of the work you're doing right now is it gives us when you talk about one specific sector, energy, it's like, okay, here's how this looks like in this section. And then you can sort of look at it in all the other sectors you have to also think about it in. But I think it helps make things a little more clear for people. If it's like in energy, this is what it looks like to both tackle uh, energy, tackle renewable energy or make, you know, tackle emissions energy and also ensure that everybody is, is not, we're not leaving anyone behind in this transition and that people are actually seeing improvements in their lives and are getting the benefits of the transition. So if we can dive into the actual report, because you do have sort of four areas uh, that for policy topics that you sort of, you highlight. And I want to sort of spend a bit of time on each of them, but as an overview for our listeners, the four are a national energy poverty strategy, a universal clean energy service, affordable energy, and then decarbonizing and efficiency for the residential sector. So I'm curious to begin, how did you decide on the breakdown of these four? And let's start with the top one, you know, what is involved in a national energy poverty strategy? So it was honestly difficult for us to bring categories and bring uh, focus and cohesion to all the different recommendations because there's such a vacuum of real solutions and policy recommendations for energy poverty in Canada. I don't at all mean to say there's a, vac a vacuum in the work being done. There are practitioners, there are folks who are on the front lines of, of working with people who are struggling with energy poverty, and they're doing such fantastic work, but they're being, they are also being, being uh, left behind. 
very few real real solutions out there being considered. So the, the great work that, that the report authors did was pull together this suite of all these recommendations, more than 18 individual recommendations that we put together into these, these four categories. So the, the National Energy Poverty Strategy being the first one, again, because we're behind in Canada, even having the right data to track this stuff, knowing exactly how best to administer these programs, even what number to put on it for what energy poverty even is, if it's 10% or 15% or whatever of, uh, of um, a household's annual income being spent on energy, there are really nuanced ways to look at the actual burden folks are facing with, with energy poverty. So we want to see practitioners, folks who themselves are struggling with energy poverty, a whole host of folks uh, around the table to, to have a, a national conversation about energy poverty so that we have some really good supports that we can, can put in place in the long term. But I'll say that the other solutions that are in this report can't wait that long. You know, if, if we're going to establish access to clean electricity, clean energy as a right in Canada, if we're going to do this big national work, it's going to take years. We think it's really important, but we also identify that folks are struggling right now. So we need to, to roll programs out very quickly to, to help make sure that folks aren't left behind or, or their situation isn't made worse as that time passes. So that the national energy poverty strategy is so key. The second one on universal clean energy service is really about making sure that folks have access to clean electricity, clean energy, regardless of their ability to pay. Um, so right now we, we see disconnections all over Canada when folks aren't able to pay and they're in arrears or, or, or enough months have passed, the utility comes by and they cut off their service. And we have some progress in making sure that that service can't be cut off in the middle of winter where folks can, can freeze to death. Um, but we want, to, we want to see that go all year round because uh, heat domes and, and heat waves are, are ever increasing and we need to make sure that um, folks have access to electricity, period. Um, the, the second part there on, on making energy affordable is a suite that that uh, a suite of, of recommendations that that goes along with that to make sure that folks can afford those bills. So it's things like specific rates depending on your income, credits on the bill so folks don't have to wait for tax season to get a credit, seasonal uh, and emergency assistance for folks too if if there is a a big weather event that that makes folks use more energy than usual. We want to have all the, these programs sort of focused for folks who most need it in those low and middle income categories. But as, as complicated as some of the policies may sound, it's really just about putting money in the hands of folks who are already struggling to meet their energy needs. And that's, that's the sad reality of, of, of this energy poverty situation too, is not only are folks not affording their bills, but they're struggling to afford their bills so much that they aren't using the energy they actually need. And that's impacting their health. That's impacting what they're able to do in their day-to-day -day lives, certainly their comfort. Um, mm -hmm. to, to quickly wrap up on the, the last one, sure. there's so much detail here, yeah, um, is this whole suite of things on, on decarbonizing the residential sector and efficiency specifically for low and middle income folks. And I'll shout out the, the folks at Efficiency Canada here too and the great work they're doing with their Efficiency for All program. This is just about making the things that everyone needs and should be doing in this transition, like putting heat pumps in their homes or, or making their homes more comfortable with things like insulation and retrofits. Some folks are able to, to afford that. Some folks are able to, to, have, to pay that off over a certain number of years or take out a loan to make that happen in their home. 
but there are a lot of folks who, who simply cannot afford that extra debt burden, who simply can't afford to go out and buy a heat pump. We need programs to give those kind of solutions to folks for free uh, and, to, and to pay for and make affordable that whole suite of work that has to happen as we make our homes more efficient. That comes along with all the health benefits and other co-benefits there too. But it's, it's a lot to talk about because there's a lot of things to explore here. Yeah, for sure. And so I'm going to jump back toward to the Universal Clean Energy Service or a bit about what we were talking about there because in a previous conversation I was having with some folks from Sierra Club Atlantic, one of the conversations we were having with them was how for them, one of the biggest challenges in terms of getting clean energy on the grid was the major utilities that they were that they were dealing with. And it's interesting to me here that you're identifying in some ways the need to decouple the profit motive, to be personally frank, from energy. You know, like if you're going to guarantee people a right to energy, then in most ways you're basically saying that it can't be something or should not be something that people are trying to profit off of specifically, or at least that there needs to be some sort of way to manage that down. Like it sounds like both of these sides, the need to get renewable energies on grid fast enough, and also the need to ensure that everyone is connected consistently and doesn't lose access. Both of these things have to go through these large utilities that that hold a, a fair amount to almost sometimes almost exclusive power in these conversations within jurisdictions. And so I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about at even just the jurisdictional problems to, to you know, because it's not even sometimes just, it's not just that power is a provincial matter, so it's not a federal matter, but it's also that power, some of the provinces have given that power to these private companies or or or, or public par- private partnerships, as it depending on who they are, in which province you're talking about. And so it's sort of like three layers down that you to uh, of influence. And so how do we how do we get in there? What can we do? I think I think we're identifying the problem. I think off the top here, I can't I can't say a single thing, and I think that's that's the, the work of the strategy on on energy poverty because this is a problem in in almost every province, even among the publicly owned utilities. There's there's a, a cost recovery relationship between someone who's using electricity and a utility who's providing that service. So they're seen as a customer, they're seen as a consumer. And they should instead be seen as someone who has a life or death need for that energy. And if you can't afford the electricity rate that's coming through, or if your home is drafty and you find yourself not being able to pay your bill, you're seen as as being a cost to that system and you're cut off from that service. But that is a life or death service. Folks need access to clean electricity. So that's a real reframe. And I think... I, I can't see this happening without the, the federal government and the provincial government kind of stepping in there a little bit um, where the utilities and the regulators haven't been able to ensure that service for folks. Yeah, yeah. totally fair. I mean, yeah, it's not, I didn't expect you to have sort of a silver bullet solution given the jurisdictional challenges of, of that question. And although I do think it's interesting that you note just the ways in which that's, it is, a, the energy is a life and death issue. And you know, it's we we live in this weird place in Canada where we will tr- will treat you for free if you get frostbite, but we won't prevent you from getting frostbite. 
right? Like, like we will make sure like emergency health services are sort of our, our, our go-to as to how we'll take care of people. And yet that's a very unpleasant, dangerous, and expensive way to, to serve, to, to ensure that people are, are, are okay, rather than just ensuring that they are not freezing in their houses or, you know, you can expand this to many other scenarios that we exist in, but like, it's a, these are often, you just mentioned heat domes, and it's it's not just in the winter, it's in the summer too, where energy is a healthcare problem. And so like, if truly we are, want to have universal healthcare, it's got to include these preventative measures. It's got to include the ways to keeping people healthy from the jump and not just waiting until they need emergency support. Um, yep, it's fundamental. Yeah. But, uh, but so let's move on to the second piece, because we talked about at the beginning of the show that I wanted to get into the ways of which renewable power is now, as you said, the cheapest possible power. It's the cheapest ever. And so how do you see the shift to renewable energy providing access to affordable energy? How can we tether these two together and make sure that the the, the co-benefits of the cheapness of power is actually going to the consumers or to those people who need to survive with the power, as we said, not necessarily consumers, and not just creating larger margins for the utilities and the companies that own the the energy. Mm. Of course, they're connected. Everything everything in these conversations are so connected. Um, But I do think that it's at least helpful for me to think about them as, as separate problems. Um, I don't think it's it's the responsibility of, of folks who are struggling to, to meet their energy bills or, or meet their energy needs um, to worry about decarbonizing the grid. I think utilities, provinces, the federal government need to get their act together and make sure that that the, uh, the electricity system is clean so that we can begin to try and avoid the very worst impacts of climate change, which of, which of course itself is, is such a crisis. Um, and and if and as that that grid is clean, uh, we believe it it becomes affordable. We believe the average cost of of energy for a household will go down in almost every case. But even with all that, energy poverty is such a problem in Canada today that it needs very specific supports and a total restructuring of how we deliver energy services in Canada to make sure that those who aren't who are left be, who are being left behind right now are accounted for and and are actually able to to afford and experience you know having the energy they need be actually delivered to them so i think this is another we hope with a report like this this is another value because i think it's it's pretty gross how the issue of energy poverty is sometimes talked about in Canada in the way that it is weaponized against progress generally. So I couldn't agree more that we don't want to make electricity expensive for folks who can't afford it. But that's often being used as as rhetoric by folks who want to stop progress on the energy transition or by politicians or utilities or sometimes even regulators who just want to block renewable electricity or who just want to, to keep fossil fuels on the grid. We hear that all the time, that if we move to renewables, we'd make energy too expensive for folks who can't afford it. First of all, I, I think that's completely untrue. And I think we have <laughs> enough confidence and enough solutions to to maintain energy affordability generally. But if these folks, if policymakers actually cared about folks who are struggling with energy poverty, we hope they would look at a report like this one. We hope that they would take some of the advice in a report like this one and the work that frontline 
anti-poverty advocates have been calling for for years in actually addressing the specific problem of energy poverty in Canada. Awesome. And so one last question before our second music break, which is a little bit more about this conversation about efficiencies in residential sectors. Because for a long time, I've heard this mantra that the cheapest you know, kilowatt of electricity is the one that you don't need to use in the first place. And when we previously in times when there's consideration of finding ways to reduce energy costs while decarbonizing, you know, efficiency was seen honestly as a way to offset the increased cost of, of renewable energy. Now that's not, no longer the case. Right now, this is it is a, it is the cheapest it's ever been, and yet still it's pretty safe to understand why not using it at all is still cheaper. You, you can kind of still imagine and understand that efficiency remains super important for you know a number of reasons. As you mentioned, it comes with a whole host of co-benefits that that don't even come don't even touch necessarily the actual cost of energy. But I'm curious if we can talk a little bit more about what kind of strategies and supports and policies we can put in place to to really see that because it's a huge task you know we talked to some folks again out east who are working on trying to mass scale build retrofits for for homes in the east coast and it's a huge huge project there but it's not just there it's across canada right this is a we have a lot of old homes, a lot of old residential neighborhoods that that desperately would need to be retrofitted. So, yeah, what kind of policies do we need to see, and and how can we get there? Yeah, and and without pushing back on 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 what you said to open up this part of the conversation on how affordable energy efficiency is, I think there's tons of very low cost energy efficiency things that folks do, light bulbs, shower heads, some insulation, all this stuff. But I think what we what I see the real need for are things like deep energy retrofits, where we're really talking about like a whole envelope thing on a building to really upgrade how efficient that building would use energy. And it might be the truth in some cases, and in, in fact, a lot of cases that a big retrofit like that probably won't pay for itself in five years or 10 years. I believe it's still really worth doing because it comes with all these other co-benefits to people's health and to people's comfort in their homes and to resilience. When you have a net zero energy ready home or a passive house and your electricity goes out in a storm, your home stays warm for two, three, four days before you, you really need to, to, to turn that heat back on. There's so many things that, that go into to why we, we believe in, in using less energy. And the fact that it's actually sometimes a problem that uh, the folks who are in drafty homes or in drafty rental spaces particularly are the folks who are least able to afford or who are least able to control whether or not uh, a retrofit happens in their building. So the kind of solutions that that the authors put into to this report try to address that directly. So it's things like free heat pumps for folks to make that switch directly, free electric hot water heaters for, for folks who are least able to afford them, specific programs for multi-residential landlord-owned buildings where, where renters are so that those kind of efficiency projects can happen and the residents, the tenants actually see the benefits of that instead of it just going to putting rents up. All this, this sort of thing kind of fits in the matrix of solutions that we're kind of putting forward, but the bottom line is that this these retrofits efficiency work is needed in, in every home in Canada, and we need specific supports like these to make them affordable and accessible to, to low and middle income folks. 
you've looked at this report now for quite some time. You've been working on it for the last few months. In the work you've done on this report and in the reviewing that you've done recently and talking about thinking about it, is there anything specifically that stood out to you or surprised you? You know, that you're like, man, more people should know this. Why isn't this more well known? I mean, it's always sobering when you start to look at the numbers of, of how much folks are already struggling in Canada. So for me, as the authors are presenting that data, um, was surprising. Um, and even though I've been around this world, it's it's hard to look at, especially in in, in the place that that I call home in, in Mi'kma'ki and uh, in Atlantic Canada. In in a lot of places, it's one in five households who who struggle to afford to meet the basic need of, of, uh, of the energy that they use in, the, in, in their day-to-day. Um, the scope and scale of energy poverty as a problem in Canada and how long it's gone unaddressed um, is certainly shocking uh, to me, and I, and I think it will be to folks who flip through the report. Um, on the flip side of that, um, I'm surprised and, and uh, encouraged that so many of the solutions that we have for climate and for, for climate justice and the just transition uh, begin to address many problems at once. Um, so, so some of the solutions we talked about, um, making energy affordable for folks uh, and the health benefits that come along with that, the, the kind of life and livelihood and comfort that everyone deserves, uh, that that unlocks for people, um, uh, is, is saving the climate, so to speak, at the same time. Um, and, and the more work we do in communities, the more opportunity there is for, for jobs and for kind of stable like care work as, as part of this transition um, to, to not only reduce emissions, but make people's lives better. Um, and I think that's worth really worth doing. I, I want to ask you, so whenever I find, get a chance to talk to sort of someone who's an expert in a particular area or they live in their field, I always am curious to know what you're paying attention to. Are there trends out there in the world or stories out there in the world that you know, bring you hope or that you think are really important, people should be paying attention to, or that you just personally find interesting? You know, Because 99% of the world is probably is not paying as much attention to renewable energy in either Canada or the world as, as you are. And so is there, are there things out there that you want people to, to know about or think about? Indigenous communities, straight up and first, almost in every corner and category of, of this work on clean energy and clean electricity. Um, I think Canadian settlers uh, tend to have a pretty patronizing view of, of Indigenous communities as always needing help and, and all that sort of harmful messaging. And the opposite is true. Um, so in, Indigenous communities uh, across Canada are leaders in, in this transition and are leaders in making this transition actually work for their communities, making sure that benefits flow to, to their communities, to their members, to, 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 to their families. Um, where I think uh, the, rest of, the rest of Canada, um, uh, settler and immigrant communities um, have so much to learn from, uh, from the amazing work that indigenous communities are doing uh, in, this, in this space. Um, so I know I have a lot to learn from from them in, in this work, and I and uh, and uh, that that always gives me hope to see the kind of uh, it's always good to see you know renewable electricity projects go up and and us begin to win this win this fight for climate solutions. It's even better when you can really see that it's it's um, materially uh, impacting people's lives in a good way. Um, so, so I want to see that for, um, for, for, for all kinds of folks. We got a lot to learn. Yeah. It's interesting you say that. Cause I feel like that was one of the ways when here in Ontario, 
you know, back in the day of the Green Energy Act, there was sort of this hope that communities could pick up internal benefits from renewable projects. And yet when I was speaking to some folks out east, one of the things that they were saying about the number one way to be able to get these renewable projects online was to ensure the benefits were going back to communities. And yet time and time again, it does seem like we haven't figured that out. You know, either there's these big companies coming in with wind projects that people get mad about because it feels very similar to you know, extractive oil companies coming in. And so it's interesting to hear about these projects that are successfully being led by community and that those in the community are then seeing the benefits actually stay in community because that is remarkable. I, I just couldn't agree more with that sentiment. And I think that also is up for grabs um, in how this huge build out of, you know, 10 times, 15 times, 18 times more <laughs> renewable energy than we have today is, is being talked about. Um, so, so how we do that and really asking ourselves who benefits is a, is a whole other conversation that I'm looking forward to having, but um, it's so crucial that we, we make sure that the benefits flow to communities. For sure. Uh, well, we look forward to having you back talk about who benefits in the, in, the, in the coming months. But before we do that, and, and before we let you go, how can folks find this report? Uh, so this report, uh, keeping the lights on and, and how we're, we're addressing um, energy poverty, along with a lot of the other work that we're doing and uh, the, the work we're trying to do to support folks and speaking directly to their MPs and calling for clean electricity, trying to make sure that uh, some of the, the clawbacks that we talked about um, uh, being on the table right now don't happen. Uh, you know, this, this work takes all of us. Um, so you'll find lots of ways to get involved, um, as well as, as the reports that we talked about today on our website. And that's uh, davidsuzuki.org. And if you simply Google David Suzuki Clean Electricity, it'll take you there too. Um, so we'll, uh, we'll have lots of resources up there for everybody. It's our tradition to give our guests the last word on the show. So I'll throw to you for one last word. But before we do that, thank you so much, Stephen Thomas, the Climate Solutions Policy Analyst with the David Suzuki Foundation. Always so great to have you on. And yeah, any last words? This work takes all of us. This work is about relationships. So never for a second think that you can't have a real effect here. I'm complaining about the policy world and all this stuff. And that's, that's nothing compared to the power that I really do feel communities and, and individual folks can have. So also never let them tell you it's not possible. I think that's, that's one of the, the key ways that we get held back is, is just by throwing our hands up and thinking that this future we're hoping and trying to build is impossible. And I just know that it's not. So the more stories we can tell about a future that's worth fighting for, the, the more I feel any glimmer of hope in this work. So looking forward to, to keeping up those conversations and to, to working with folks on this stuff.